Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for today. And we thank you, Lord, just for a chance to come together, Lord, as people along the way, Lord, um, seekers, sojourners, sinners, and saints, Lord, knowing that you have called, you have invited us all in, you've called us all in, and Lord, that in Christ we can all be redeemed, we can all be made whole, we can all know you and be known by you, Lord, without fear. Lord, we can walk through this world with purpose, Lord, with hope, with peace in the midst of all that is happening. Lord, I know today there are many who are over the moon with the state of things, and there are many who are just in despair. Lord, wherever we are, let us bring all of our cares to you, entrusting them to you, Lord, submitting our lives to your truth, to your will, to your way, knowing that you created us, you created us for your purpose, and there is nothing more satisfying than living for you for that purpose. So, Lord, for your glory, use this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to James 1. Uh, Use your apps. Click on your apps if you need to. If you need a Bible, there's one underneath a chair near you. Uh, I would recommend if you don't know where James is, just use the table of contents. It's a five-chapter book. It's way towards the back. Um, And so just kind of start back there or use the table of contents. If you use the YouVersion Bible app, we've got a live event in there, I think. We typically do. Yes, we do. And so you can use that there. Go, go to the More tab. Go to the Events. The Bridge Montrose will pop up, and there's the text in there, as well as a place for notes and some other questions to help you consider. Um, but today, as we kick off studying through James, we study through books of the Bible in the fall and in the spring. Uh, we'll be studying through James uh, from now until the end of May. Um, and, and so today, bear with me, because we're going to hit a lot more context than normal. And this context is really going to set us up kind of for the whole study to come. And we, I'm not going to go into all the context we need, but at least kind of lay the bare foundation that we need that we can build on. And so today you're going to get, but this is kind of by way of intro. So today you're going to get a bit more information about James, about what was happening than we would normally cover. But it's all going to be helpful because, again, what is important for us as we come to the Word is to understand the context, to understand the author, what the author's in intent was for the audience they were writing to in the culture that they were in, and that helps us understand the principal truth of how we can say that all of Scripture has all of God's counsel that we need for today. So, I think you're there now. We're just going to read real quickly the first verse of James 1. It says this, it says, James, a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So this is his intro. So let's just answer a few questions real quick kind of to set us up to get some background. First off, we see James here. James is not the subject. It is the author. This is the way they did it back then. So he's saying like, hey, I, James, wrote this. I'm a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, putting his faith out there under under God's authority. But just who was James? There's a few Jameses. Jameses? A few James? How do you say it like that? I don't know. James. A few James. Okay. Thank you, group C, better together, guys. Um, But there's a few James that that we read of in the New Testament. And because one of the main reasons that we have the confidence to say that this James is the brother of Jesus is the fact that he just said James. He didn't give any other clarifiers. He was pretty well known. Also, James, the brother of Jesus, was a prominent leader in the early church. So that's why we can say with confidence that this is James. Another bit of fun fact for you, that if you were talking to James during this time, during this day, or any other James that you see in the New Testament, you've act, you actually would have called him Jacob. This is just, that, that's, that was his name. But uh, in the translations and stuff, and they call him James. That's what we call him. So just, just a little fun fact for you. But this is James, the brother of Jesus. 
So just go ahead and put yourself there for a minute. You grew up with Jesus as your older brother. Remember, Jesus was born to a virgin, so he's the oldest. And then Mary had other children through, through uh, non-supernatural ways with Joseph. And so James, half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus. I mean, if you have siblings, you always know that there is one who thinks the, that, there, that there is another that is favored. I mean, just to go ahead, and, and maybe that explains why James didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah until after Jesus' resurrection. We see that all throughout, the, all throughout Acts and, 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 uh, and through the Gospels. And so James, brother of Jesus, didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah until after Jesus resurrected. But then he, 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 he believed, he surrendered his life, and he was all in. And James, from then on, he was devout, he was, he was righteous, he was just, he was active, he was passionate about, about the redeeming work of Christ. He was passionate for people, especially Jews, to understand that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, to understand that there was a way to salvation other than just adhering to the law. There was a freedom in Christ. He was so passionate about this that James was said to have knees like camels because he was on his knees praying so much, and most of that praying was this prayer of intercession on behalf of his people. So he was this devout, passionate man who was purposeful, who was, I mean, he was respected. He was so respected, even by the Jewish community, after he became a, a, a Christ follower, a, a Messianic Jew, that there was, after the martyrdom of Paul, there was this uprising. There was outrage amongst the people. And the Pharisees and the scribes of the Jewish temple came to James, who was a known Christian, but yet they also knew that he was always just, he was always righteous, he was always pure, and he always did the right thing. And so they came to him and they said, James... Will you help us? These people, they're, they're getting out of hand. Will you calm them down? He's like, sure, I'll help. So he, they're like, well, hey, let's, let's put them on the pinnacle of the temple so that everyone can hear them and see them. So they put them on the pinnacle of the temple. And then they say, they pretty much ask him the question of, James, who do you say Jesus is? And, this, and all this comes from Eusebius. He was a first century uh, historian um, right before 100 B.C., um, so he was, he, he knew, and, uh, but they, they, they ask him this question, and James goes, he goes on to start proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. Well, people start surrendering, they start believing, they start rejoicing, and the Pharisees were like, oh no, we've, we've made a tiny, huge mistake. And, and one of them runs up and pushes James off the temple. James falls to the ground, doesn't die, they, they pick up stones, and they stone him, and then one finally takes a club and hits him until he dies. James was committed. He knew trials in this world. He was legit. He was righteous. He was just. He was pure. But he was tough. He didn't compromise. This, was, this, this letter was written uh, some, somewhere in the early to mid-40s A.D. This is probably the earliest written book you have in the New Testament. Uh, the genre is a general epistle first, so it's a pastoral letter written to a people for instruction. We say general because it, it seems that it's not written to a specific, specific occasion. There are no specific needs mentioned, as you see in some of Paul's letters and Peter's letters. 
but it is written to general need, general experience of the, of, the, of the church at the time, and specifically he was ministering mostly to Jewish Christians. And this is also kind of, it's also wisdom literature. As you read this, think about Proverbs and think about especially the Sermon on the Mount. And I, what I love thinking about is that James, again, didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah until way late in life, but then so much of his writing emulates Jesus' teaching. So even though he was denying it, stuck. And it took root in his heart, and now it's flourishing, and it's coming out. But to say that it's wisdom literature, it's, it's, it's just practical teaching. You'll notice that it doesn't, flow, it doesn't follow this flow of thought, this train of thought. It just kind of jumps from one thing to another. But we will see that there is a central theme in just a second. So he was, James was writing to, a Jewish, to the Jewish Christian community. There you see that he's writing to those in the, the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Uh, if you read in Acts, you see that after Stephen was martyred, when he was stoned, you saw that the, out, out of kind of fear and a need for safety, the, 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 the Christians dispersed. They, they scattered. And so now they were not in their home, and plus they were in an occupied land. So they're, now they've, they've left their resources. They've left the place where they had influence. So now he's writing to a people that are oppressed. They're in poverty. They are, they are going through trials. They live trial every day. And this is important. You'll see as we come into the text. So again, this is James. He's writing a pastoral letter to the people he cares about, the Jewish Christians. Um, and, and to think about why we would really want to engage with James over the next few months. Um, we know, we know trials. We know, we've all felt the tension of, okay, God is good. Okay, he's got a plan for me. Okay, there's hope, there's peace. But then the everyday weight that we face. We know the tension of trial. We, we know the moments of desperation. Our, our, our tension, our trials may not be as dramatic all the time, but they still feel suffocating and like a weight that we cannot bear. We all get there. So this, as James is writing to a people that are experiencing that, we can know that we can, we can say, okay, this is for us too. One last note, James is a challenging book. Um, it, it, you know, when, I, when we were talking, when I would talk to people about what we were going to be teaching over the next few months, as I talked to just people in the church, and I would say, James, they'd be like, oh, we love James. It's great. It's so great. I'm so excited. And it's because it's practical, because we all want to know just some clear black and white on how to live, and James does that for us. And plus, as we'll see in these first few verses today, if you know anything from James, you probably know these first few verses. Um, there is greatly encouraging, too. And, and so on that hand, but then we, as you talk to theologians and, and teachers and, and academics, they, they say, oh, James, that's, that's a tough one. And, and, and a lot of it revolves around the challenge of what we do with James's teaching and Paul's teaching. You know, and James, James elevates this faith expressed by works, and, and, and Paul talks about salvation and faith alone, and there's this tension of what is our mode of salvation? Is it, is it faith or works? So, we're going to work through that for the next few months. This is what we can say today and what's important for us to stand on. There is absolutely a relationship between faith and works, and we must deal with it. We can't just say, I don't like it. Let's just, let's just go for faith. Or let's just, and, some of us, and some of you will prefer works because you can control that more. But, but we have to deal with it. James, in looking at this, James references faith 14 times throughout this five chapters. Out of 108 verses in the five chapters of James, 
there are 59 different commands that James gives. So we see that faith is important, and we see also this extreme passion for it to be expressed in the working out of our salvation. The other thing we can take away from James is this, is that our faith and works should absolutely have an impact on our city and world around us. Cannot escape that. If you want a mature Christian faith, this letter from James is one of the most profound and crucial passages for this work to be accomplished in you and in me. So let's commit to dig in, to get uncomfortable, to discourse together, submit our understandings to the Lord, and allow this work to be done. What we'll see here is that there will always be trial in this world, but that our faith can actually flourish in the midst of this reality. So these first few, these first few verses today that we're, that we're going to address in verses 2 through 4, we'll see the central theme of this whole letter presented, and it'll set up the rest of the letter. So let's get to it. Let's read verses 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sounds great, right? But there's some things to notice. But first, let's just kind of work through it. Okay? So we start off here. It says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. What does that mean? So that word count, you know, maybe it's obvious by the context, but it is, is, to, is to consider. It is to, to ponder and reflect and to think on. It says, consider it all joy. In that phrase, consider all joy, it is not just an encouragement of like, hey, you should try this. It's in the imperative tense, and it's a verb. And so it's, it's, it has the force of a command. It's also indicative, so it's also meant to be presented as reality that those who are in Christ, this should be your reality. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So it's imperative, it is a command, it is a verb, it's action. So when we think about this, when we think about considering it all joys, joy to face all kinds of trials, what are we talking about? It goes beyond a feeling. It's not just, hey, when you're trials, I mean, just, just feel better. Make sure, make sure you feel good. It's not about what we feel, it's about what we know. It's the transforming of the mind. And so it's not about putting on the fake smile so that everyone thinks that all is okay all the time and so that the world knows that God is good. I mean, that's kind of the tradition I grew up in. I don't, I don't know if that's just what I created or what I was taught, but that's kind of what I thought was I, I need to put on the face because, I don't, because I'm an ambassador to God and I want to make sure people know he's good so I'm going to always be good. That's not what we're being compelled to here. It's not about putting on the fake smile. And this right here, this verse, it is really, it's not the go-to comfort verse when you're talking to someone who is going through a trial and someone who's going through something, someone who has just lost their job way unexpectedly and, and they're trying to, you know, buy a house. And their world's just crumbled. You know, it's not good to lead off with, hey, consider it all joy, brother. This is just a trial. That's, I mean, yes, this is a foundational truth, and we're going to get to that. But, but it's, not, it's not just out of the gates a, a verse of comfort. It's not about a feeling. It's about, about what, it's what, it's what is the reality in our mind. It's about the reality of the work God accomplished in this world. The world to come and through Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. This, this considering it all joy when you, when you meet trials of many kind, it is about the reality of the work God accomplished in this world accomplished in the world to come, 
and in you through Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that in just a second. So it says, consider it all joy when you, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials of various kinds, an important note about this word trial here in the Greek is, is perosmos, which, yes, maybe you care about that, maybe you don't, but what it, what's interesting about this word is that as you read through James, you'll see the word temptation, test, and trial. Every time you see those three words in James, it is this one word. Why does that matter? Well, for first off, what we're going to see is that this imperative, this command here to consider it all joy and in in why this is possible applies all throughout this book. And so again, hang on to this as we read through the rest of this and work through the rest of this and we, talk, and we see the other temptations and the tests and the trials that we face to know that this very promise and this very command applies there. Secondly, what we see, we see two kinds of conflict here. If trial can be called conflict, we see the, we see the internal conflict and temptation. That is where, where, the, where the heart is pulled, where the mind is, is distracted. It's the internal, it's the temptation where you are faced with a decision. And then there's the, the circumstantial trial, the trials that we face. Those are, so we see an internal and an external, and they are both in view here. And so God is calling us, to, to surrender both of those and to, to trust him no matter what. It's not just the external, it's not just the internal, it is both. We face tons of small trials every day. We know it. I mean, they pile up and they bury us to the point of giving up. Sometimes it feels like the small trials are worse than the big trials, especially when that's all you know. So, so we feel that these, these small little tests, these trials, these things that come against us every day, they just they don't ever seem to stop. And we're always seeming to having to mitigate and work through those. But then on top of that, then we face big trial. The big trials come, the, the, the tragedy of, uh, or, or, you know, where we lose a loved one or we, or we are injured or a job loss or that relationship that just implodes unexpectedly. These are the big trials that just shake us where our, where our foundation is checked. And, we, and we, it's like, is this really what this life is about? Is this really what you're calling us to, God? Is this really what you're saying me to consider pure joy? To consider all joy? How in the world could James, or how in the world even more, could God be seriously saying this for us? That this is what we should think. This is what our reality should be, that we should consider this joy. Big question, right? So we said that this is all about the reality of the work, the work, the reality about the work of God, which He has accomplished in Jesus Christ. This is the key to considering all trial, internal temptations and external hardships, joy. What is joy? Joy is to rejoice. It's hard to define joy without saying it's joy. It is to rejoice in response to who God is. It is to respond with worship and adoration to who God is and how He works, that He is sovereign and holy and just and good and loving and kind and merciful and, 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 and wrathful for those who are against Him. He is consistent all the time, and we can find comfort in that because He is for His creation. We were created in His image, and He is for us because we were created for His purpose, and He wants His purpose to be complete. So again, we can rejoice in that. Joy is to rejoice in the response to who God is. So we can be comforted and joyful because God is all of those things. He is sovereign over all of life, including our trials, and his work will be accomplished as a result. And some people get mad at God that in his sovereignty he allows trials to come. 
just as a quick note that we'll expand on more throughout this book, that again, let's remember that the hardships of this world, even though God is sovereign over them, are here because of sin, are here because of a fallen nature, are here because we chose evil when faced with the choice. So again, even though he is sovereign, it is not that he inflicts, but he works in the midst of. So let's continue. Let's look back again at verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sounds really good. We want that. So the first thing accomplished in our trials is that our faith is strengthened. Trials strengthen our faith. Your faith strengthens through experience. It's like a muscle. I mean, I think about our short journey as a church and me as a lead pastor and, and elder of the bridge. Like, I've, I've been in ministry since I was 19, but I've never been in this role before. And God called me out, and I reluctantly said yes, and, and it's been a terrifying, amazingly joyful, and hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, just this crazy ride, and I wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, but it's, it, it, it is, as I've walked through this, one of the things I've realized is that I kind of have no faith memory to do what I'm doing. Like, everything is like the first time that I've been through as, as a leader. And so it's like I'm, I'm stepping out. And, and, and let me just say this. There will always be a gap between God's promise and our experience, right? That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we're not saying that we will ever come to a place where we will not need faith because we are finite. He is infinite. Our wisdom is fleeting. His is perfect, right? Our knowledge cannot attain. But yet we do grow in our faith because, you see, as I... As we've walked through this together, and, and we've been in this together, like we, we've faced all these things for the first time, and we have no memory of seeing God proven faithful. Even we know in character and in principle that He will be, we're still having to take it on this pure faith. But then we walk through it, and we see God proven faithful. And the beauty here is that it's not us it's not because of us that our faith grows. We don't grow our own faith. It's because God has proven faithful over and over again because He is unchanging. He is always who He is. And so because of that, our f- I don't want to coin this term. Like, don't tweet this or anything. But like our faith muscle, like, <laughs> like it grows, you know, like and it gets stronger because we have experienced it. And now the next time when we face a similar hardship, we're like, man, you know what? We've been through this before, and sometimes I can't remember. I'll tell you in here who was amazing at like, being my Jiminy Cricket faith muscle. Don't, don't hashtag that either. It's Jairo Rojas. Like that guy, he is, like, I remember in our early days, you know, we were just talking, and we're both bewildered. I'm, and I'm always, and, and Sanj too, like these days of like, hey, what, what will once be dust, we hold with open hands. We, we don't hold onto it all, but what's eternal is what we cling to. And we're like, hey, if, let's, just, let's trust our sovereign God. Let's walk in obedience, and we'll be pleased with that. Because when you think about what it is to start a church, there's all these crazy questions. And then I would hit this crisis of confidence. And Hiro or Sanj would, I mean, Sanj would just love calling me back to the dust. He's like, hey, it's all going to be dust one day, Heath. He's like, and, and, and Hiro's like, hey, Heath. God is sovereign. And so I don't get there on my own, but man, through the body of Christ, but we grow in our faith. So that's exactly what pictures, through trials, our faith is strengthened. We want to run away from trials. We want the easy way. 
Like, would you rather have a faith that is just theoretical and principled and untested or one that is tested to the point that it is tough and leathery, like that, it, that it's, like it's, it's calloused, that when you, hit a, when you hit a gap and you're like, I cannot see like, the way to go and you have to trust, like you've, you've been there so many times before that it's just like, okay, God, let's do this. And like once again, he's proven faithful and you're shown to be how small you are, but how much he loves you and he's for you and how much he wants your purpose to be his purpose. That's a beautiful faith. That's what we should all strive for. That's why trials do their work to strengthen our faith. And so we should, let's not go seek them out, right? Let's not go like, well, whatever, I'm not going to come up with scenarios, but let's not seek out trouble, but yet in the midst of, in the midst of, let's, let's lean into the Lord, lean into one another, submit all understanding to the truth of God, and let Him work in us and let our faith be grown. Because going through that trial, facing uncertainty, seeing God proven faithful and sovereign once again, we're emboldened and strengthened. And guess what? It's not just for you. Because like I just showed you that picture, as your faith is strengthened, you can come alongside and embolden others. Man, lift up their arms. Put, you know, put some wind under their wings. Full of some great metaphors this morning. But again, so talking about our faith, like this, this work of faith and work being for the good of your city and the world around you, when your faith is strengthened, man, the reality of God shines brightly through you, the light of the world. So we do have to step out in faith, but let's do it. We'll be, we will be equipped along the way. Okay, so the second thing, and if you ask me the greater thing, and, and I say if you ask me, I, don't, I, I didn't come up with this. I think the scripture makes this clear. But the second thing and the greater thing accomplished in our trials is that we are made more into God's likeness. Trials transform us more into God's likeness. And this is really the central purpose of trials that James drive through, drives at through the entire letter. We, want to, we will visit this over and over again over the next four and a half, five months. Trials shape us more into his likeness. We will all have a day when we stand before our almighty God. We will. This is God's work to prepare us for that day. Where he looks at you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So again, to consider it all joys because we understand the work that is being done through that trial, our faith being strengthened, us being made more into his likeness. We were created in God's image, and there was unity, there was perfection. In our fall, our image was marred. In his love, he sent Jesus to restore us, to reconcile us. So he is working that work in us. This pushes against how we think. Most of what we naturally live for is in this world. Partially due because we're sinful and our flesh hungers for these things. Partially because we are, we're, we're temporal. We're finite. This is what we know. What we aim our lives at are things like job success, 
family success or health, financial stability, you know, recognition, fame, legacy, summed up personal experience and fulfillment through things of this world. And that's when the good things are no longer good. So this is why trials are so hard for us to swallow. They threaten these things. You see, if this is what our life is aimed at, attaining and holding on to these things, we either live exasperated lives and we're, we're exasperated by how everything seems to go wrong just when we were getting it all together. Have you ever said that? I have. And we get exasperated by it. By, again? Oh, I was just getting my feet on it. Oh, I just paid off my last credit card payment. And now this. Or, if it's not that, we live full of anxiety that all this could fall apart at any moment because all this is so fragile. Because we're holding it together with our hands and our hands just are not strong enough. However, when God's work of transforming us, that's the work of sanctification, the work of transforming us, making us more like Him, when that is our goal, we can see that the trials of this world are actually good. They are, we can see them for what they are. Their violence is against God's creation, no doubt. They are evidence of a fallen world. They break God's heart. When we saw the, the humanity of Jesus when he wept at the cave of Lazarus, at the tomb of Lazarus, yes, there was just this human empathy with the hurt of Mary and Martha and friends but even greater was Jesus' heart breaking over the evidence of once again being faced with the effects of sin. Death. So when we see that, when we understand that God's work and His intent is to overcome all of these trials, the violences against His very creation, He wants to work to prove Himself faithful, to show His grace, His love, in order that you would understand Him more, know Him more, understand who you are more, where you've all of a sudden you see it as it's an opportunity for God to work in his divine love and grace to sustain us, to strengthen us, to help us to know him, to help us to love him, to help us to have compassion on others, to help us to love others, to help us to grow in patience, to help us to grow in steadfastness as we see in the text. This is what it is to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that will not fully be fulfilled until the day of Christ Jesus. But yet we are working towards that. We are being prepared for that. Jesus gave us great words of comfort, pointing us to the future hope in him. This is in John 16, 20 through 22. It says, Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is where the joy comes from. 
Because of this reality, we endure and our faith is strengthened. Because of this reality, we endure and we are made more into his likeness. We have a common goal with God lived out with confidence of this future hope with this present purpose. This calls us to a radically God-centered life. Who is at the center of your life? Is it anyone else but God? He is invited. He has said, I want to be there. And does that blow your mind? We, it is amazing to me that we often resent that God wants to be there. The loving, benevolent, grace-giving, self-giving God. We resent him that he commands to be in that place. We should have a radically God-centered life where we see, once again, we see this world through the lens of the gospel. We see this world through the eternal hope and promise that was given in Christ. So we must set our sights above the things of this world onto something far greater, the glory of God and his purpose in this world and for eternity. This reflects the reality that we can know God and the command that we are to make him known. So as we work through James... Let us wrestle well to see the relationship between faith and works. And as we do that, we will see that we can have joy in all circumstances because God is working through all of our trials to strengthen our faith and make us more like him so that our city and our world will be impacted by observing our faith in Christ. I close with this quote from Jonathan Edwards. It says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So God, may we think so highly of you. May this be a reality to us, God. I pray just, Lord, that as we, as we think on this and as we are, are, are pushed up against this, God, Lord, that we would find the joy and the surrender Lord, that as we, as we face the hardships of this world and we are faced with choices maybe to step into the discomfort,